0: Today, our sermon passage is still in Acts chapter 7, and I will be reading in are hearing today the word of the Lord, verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, these words make us cringe when we hear them. We don't like to be called stiff-necked. We are sure that they did not want to be called that. But Father, the grace that you gave us when you sent your son was in the proclamation of his first words in his ministry, which was to repent and to believe. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Father, as we hear these words, let us be cut to the heart. Pour out your spirit that we would receive this as grace. And that we would not respond as those did in that day, but that we would call upon you for your mercy, that you have granted in that day, in the days before, and to this day now, you continue to be merciful to your people. May this be for us, Father, that you would dwell with us in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're coming closer and closer to the end of this sermon. You're thinking, well, wow, Charles, you really made a long sermon, a very long, long, long sermon. But this is where I think it gets to the good. This is where, this is the, the altar call, in a sense. From Stephen, if he was a Baptist, this would be very much an altar call for those who are hearing. And in an altar call, there is that extension of grace and mercy to his people. And I think this is very much that extension. I think this is a misread passage, and I've mentioned this throughout all of the preachings of this particular chapter. And I will continue to go deeper into this, because I think there is a tremendous, tremendous fountain of life in these words of grace that Stephen was preaching to the scribes and the priests of that day. But before we go that way, I want you to think about something for a second. I want you to think about maybe some of you have probably nicknames in your life. Raise your hand if, you have, if you've ever been given a nickname. I'm not going to ask you to tell me your nickname. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but many of you have nicknames. Um, some of you go by those particular nicknames and, and nicknames can be really fun. Sometimes they're just abbreviations of a longer name, uh, but sometimes they have meaning behind them and it's usually the meaning behind them that makes people afraid of hearing them. I've I think that my father-in-law would not mind me sharing this story. Um, but you know, my father-in-law's name is Buzz. His name is Luther, but he goes by Buzz. And I remember when I met Jennifer, and she told me that her dad's name was Buzz. I immediately assumed that he was a retired police officer or ex-military, and it kind of scared me. I was like, you know, because I was thinking, what well, does he have? Is it because of his haircut? Or because I'm thinking, I'm, yeah, I've got to, This is for me to go further with her. I'm going to have to get through this guy. And she's like. No, no, it's not that. And I don't know when I found out the story of my father-in-law's name, but uh, it had nothing to do with anything manly. It had to do with a nickname that his sister gave him when he was changing his diaper. (laughs) Said, you stinky old buzzard. And that stink stuck. Stuck with him that he has called that today I mean it's a funny kind of a nickname so when you think about that nickname it's an endearing nickname that his sister gave him there's a sweet thing thinking about that childhood time when your sisters have to be involved in that way but that's not a very pleasant sounding name if you think about where it came from but he doesn't mind it he's he's okay with it now after all these years then recently, I was in a um, revival service where my friend Aaron was preaching, and he likes to interact with people when he's preaching, kind of like I do, but even more so. And he'll, he will say their names as he's preaching. And, Isn't that right, Charlie? Isn't that right? Charlie? And he called me Charlie, because that's what he called me when, we, when I was in middle school and in high school. Well, high school, when he was my youth director, and I was known by Charlie at that particular time. But he kind of went a little further because he was going to be talking about the distinctions of different people's convictions. And so we're here at at that time we were in a Baptist church and he knows my Presbyterian convictions and, and he kind of played along with that a little bit as he's talking about end times and the differences of people's thoughts about eschatology and the study of the end times and he kind of played with it knowing that I am there and some of the things that he said were things that were endearing and some of them were kind of you know picking at me and a lot of times nicknames assuming that you're thinking of your own a lot of times the nicknames are kind of picking at you it, there's usually a story I asked Marus if he had a nickname, and he does. He he told me what it is. I can't pronounce it, but he remember (laughs) it. But he he says there's a story. It's a really good story. It's always a story, right? There's a story behind that one name, that one single nickname kind of just opens up history and draws your mind there. And sometimes it draws you to things you don't want to remember, but generally there's something kind of endearing about it, or they know that that nickname would have been insulting and, and too painful to, to hear. Often we will do that with one another. We will say something to somebody to remind them of a history and it's most fun and it's most meaningful and deep when it's actually kind of cutting and also lifting up at the same time. Now I don't mean to demean this particular proclamation of Stephen calling these people, you stiff-necked people, I don't, I'm not saying that he kind of winked and nod when he said it to them. It, he, I'm not saying it was that cordial of a presentation. But I think it's really important for us to look at when Stephen does that, that he is going back to a story. That name is not just a name floating by itself. As I've mentioned in previous sermons, that is a name that God gave his people at a particular time and circumstance, and it was meant to, to dig, to, to dig really deep into the heart. Not just a, a joking comment about some little flaw or a little mistake or something small in someone's life, but to be a condition of the heart. But I, do want to, I did want to make that kind of association so that you can see that it is not alone a dig at them. There is a tremendous amount of grace in this proclamation of you stick peak people. How in the world can there be any grace in that? We know in the, in the following verses that Stephen is moved by the Holy Spirit. So we can't say that Stephen is making a mistake here, that he obviously didn't think things through when he let words come out of his mouth like sometimes I do. We know for certainty that he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he made this proclamation. And we know the fruit of the Holy Spirit is going to be both difficult to hear at times but also refreshing. We know that it's always going to be based upon justness and love. And so these words that came forth from his mouth, as he said, you stick neck people are going to be even more full of grace than it is admonition because that is what the spirit does when he proclaims this before his people as I got into this, I was planning on going more in depth throughout all of these particular verses all the way through 53, and the more I dug into this first one, I kind of had it categorized. I was going to do, you stick-neff people, you uncircumcised heart of ears, and then I was going to get into the resisting of the Holy Spirit, and then I was going to go and talk about always persecuting and betraying those who come and to proclaim the righteous one, one, always those who are always pointing to Jesus Christ, but I got stuck. As the more I dug into you, stick-necked people, I, I tapped into a, a gold mine, a, a, a huge fountain of grace and mercy. And I thought, these people need to hear this. They need to hear you, stick-necked people. They need to hear the grace that was associated with that name. Maurice told me that, that that name is still given to Israel Today, whenever they're in negotiations and they're not getting along very well, they'll point back, you know, you've had this nickname, God gave this nickname to you, you're obstinate, stick-neck people, something that kind of stuck with them, even to this day. But there's a grace here, and I want you to, to see that grace. I want to do a, a little bit of a recap because I think we need to, to carry some other baggage with us as we go back and look at how this nickname came to them. I want to first just go back and think about Acts 7, where we've at where we're at so far, because this was kind of a build-up. This is the crescendo. This is the end. This is where finally Stephen's making his final point before the scribes and the priest here, but he's gone through and he's given them all these covenant stories and reminded them we first have Abraham and how God appeared to him. Just that alone, that God appeared to Abraham, that God, the creator of all things, appeared to a human being and established a covenant with him. He removed Abraham from the land and his kindred, but then he promised him a land and a new kindred of offspring that would be a nation of people. If you remember the story of Abraham, he is old, and this is a, a big promise to make, a promise that would be a miracle that he would have an offspring, a nation of people that would come from his loins. God established a covenant of salvation in Abraham, establishing a people in and through Abraham. And then we have Joshua, and it says that that God was with Joshua. These are things that we should stop and just chew on. God was with Joshua. He dwelt with Joshua, and the patriarchs were jealous because of that. Because of that blessing that God placed upon Joshua, the reaction of that was jealousy. And this is when we start seeing Stephen beginning to dig into his hearers on how they are responding. But God granted him salvation. This is a continual theme, salvation. He saved him from the actions of the patriarchs, his brothers. And God made him a fulfillment of promised salvation for the promised offspring of Abraham. You said Joshua, I think mean, mean Joseph. I, I wrote Joshua, and it threw me completely off. You're right; it is Joseph. Joshua's later with Moses. Thank you. I would have probably stuck with that all the way through this paragraph. <laughs> it's Joseph. Sorry, Joshua's later with with Moses. Yeah, it was Joshua It was Joseph and his brothers. God made Joseph a fulfillment of promised salvation in this one shadow story of what is to come, but it was fulfilling already what was said in Abraham because we have a nation of people that are being saved. Joseph becomes the shadow of Jesus Christ, a shadow of promised salvation. Then we have Moses, which is a story immediately of God granting salvation. As those respond, those who are full of Satan and full of sin, are seeking the death of children, those who have jealousy of anything that's going to take their throne, seeking out to kill people like Moses. God granted him salvation from that, even given him a name of drawing him from the water in which there was a moment of seemingly uncertainty of what his fate may be. And God appeared to him, again, God appearing to mankind, and God making him a fulfillment of promised salvation for the bigger nation of Abraham, the promised offspring, continuing to see that as it's getting bigger and further and further, that God is saving his people, God is establishing his people, and God is furthering his promises time and time again. We see this in Moses, and God granted Not just Moses' salvation, but now the people of God' salvation. God proclaimed through Moses a promise of future salvation, as we see in Acts 7, where it says that there is going to be one from the brothers that's going to be a greater prophet, still pointing to fulfillment, still pointing to God keeping his steadfast promises to his people. Pharaoh did not know this God. And Israel was having a hard time understanding this God. Pharaoh killed the offspring of those who were to be the promises of God and worshiped idols. And unfortunately, we see that in that lack of understanding of God and knowing God and turning away from God and being stick net, that Israel, even in her walk, she began to worship idols and kill her own offspring, the offspring in which God had promised and the offspring in which future promise would come. In that idolatrous worship, Israel even sacrificed their own children to Melek. And then God gave them over to a hardness of heart. But in every single stanza of this particular song or sermon, as you want to look at it, the next scene is the temple. We see God dwelling among his people, the promised offspring. God keeps coming back to his people. And in that temple, we see this command and act to sacrifice, to be near the law and the word, to hold the sacrifices, holding on to that promise of forgiveness and salvation, to have a table set before them to eat with God and not to just eat with God, but God giving himself for their own nourishment. God putting a light in their midst of darkness and then Calling them to come and to provide incense, which are the prayers of the people to talk, to converse, to again, to be with God. God granted them salvation in driving out enemies as he walked with them and then entered in Joshua in the story. And then God promised a future kingdom of salvation and a dwelling not made with hands as he conversed with David and Solomon. And as the temple was made, it was automatically being seen as something that would end up being temporary. It was only a shadow of God's dwelling with his people, his promise of dwelling with his people time and time again. This is the context of the sermon, is that as you look at that, you can see where Stephen is calling the people of God to to repentance. But you can see in those stories the continual grace that God gave his people. He kept dwelling with them. They kept sinning. They kept doubting him. They kept being stick-necked. But God kept dwelling with them. God kept his promises even when they would not keep the promises. He's always there, continuing to be there. Even when he gave them over to the worship and the hardness of their heart, he did not annihilate them. And he drew his people back. He continued to keep his promises over and over again. So when we go back and when we look at this particular story, we need to go and remember that, that this is what what Stephen is telling the people. And in that particular time, this is the time when God is dwelling with Moses and he's telling Moses what he wants. He's telling Moses his will. He's telling Moses his character. He's given Moses his law. He's describing to Moses how his people ought to react and how they should worship him. And this was a tremendously wonderful time that the holy and righteous God was using Moses as an intercessor to be the one to communicate the present and the future dwelling of God. The present and past in future salvation of God. That is what Moses' responsibility was. And here he was. He was up at, in the mountain, and he was with God, and God gave him the instruction. And he went down. And, it was, and if you look into the, in the flow, it's, it's almost you almost miss it because he, he comes down, and then God calls him back up to give him more information about what needs to be done for the the tent of meeting. But before that happens, when he calls him to come back up, Moses stops and he goes with the people and he tells the people everything that God had told him about dwelling with them. This is in Exodus chapter 24. In verse 3 it said, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Seemed like a pretty simple thing, right? God talked to Moses, laid it out for him, who he is and his law and what the people should be doing to obey the character and the calling of God. And the things to do and not to do. Moses comes down, he tells the people and he said, we'll do it. They entered, they they did their part of the covenant. God says, I'm going to do this. This is who I am. And they responded, yes, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. So what, it, what he does with this is that you know, they, they agree with the words of the Lord, and then Moses sets up an opportunity to worship, sets up an altar. They do sacrifices on behalf of the Lord. And then he takes the blood of the sacrifices, and he throws it on the altar. Again, this is imagery and shadowing of what is to come in Christ that these things are going to be covered by a sacrificial blood, covering the sins of his people. Then in verse 7, it says, Then he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people. So he took what he just received from the Lord, and he read it again to the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and he threw it on the people, and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you, in accordance with all these words. You see what was going on here? God gave the words, his words to Moses, appointed Moses to be their leader and their intercessor in this time. And God, I mean, the Moses delivered these words to the people, and the people further enter into this covenant by an affirmation of that. And then he baptizes them with the blood of the covenant. They basically became members of this church, this, this new church that God was establishing with his people. They entered into covenant. They made vows saying that we will do what you said. And then they are baptized. And then Moses has to leave and go back up with Nadab and Abihu and Aaron and the 70 elders to get more information about how they would worship him and how they would dwell with him. So he's up there, and God gives them the details about the tent. Of meeting and he's ending all of this he's intermixing it with the feast and he's talking about the sabbath he ends with the sabbath and he's saying you know basically this is going to end in rest that you're going to take the sabbath and you're going to cherish it and if you don't cherish this rest you'll die and it's a grace he's pointing to the to the sabbath and so moses leaves and as he's leaving god says These people, do you know what they're doing? It says that in Exodus chapter 32, verse one, it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Moses goes back up. You know, you look at this particular scene, and it seems like a wonderful scene, but God can't stop hardly for a moment giving moses information about how he's going to dwell with them and how they are to respond to it and moses takes a quick break to 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 tell them what god is saying and to to worship with them and to to bring them into the membership of god's people through covenant and then goes back up to get more about what god wants them to see and to know of how to be with him and before he can even get back the people are getting restless They've gotten a a little bit of a taste of worship. You can see how they've intermingled the things that they learned from Moses, but they're also bringing in their own creativity and their own memory of what they had seen in Egypt. I haven't been able to pinpoint perfectly what the Catholic fully means, but it seems pretty consistent among commentators that it is something that they took with them from Egypt as being a representation of, of God and some even say that maybe it was something they were focused on as they're going through this Red Sea as they have the oxen pulling them through. But whatever it is, we know from looking back at Exodus 20 and 21 that God does not desire and will for them and has commanded them not to worship him with graven images. He just got through telling them that. And here they are getting creative like you know we've got these rings that are symbols of our slavery and we're going to shape them into this God that we kind of remember from Egypt and we're still going to do some sacrifices and they're just intermixing whatever they feel like out of their restlessness to worship God and we need to stop here we need to think about Who we need to become for a moment in this particular story. Just as we are sometimes to be put in our place to the scribes and the priest when Stephen was talking to them. We need to be putting ourselves as the people of God because we are the people of God. And look at the mistakes they made. What kind of mistakes did they make? Well, one, they got restless. They got restless with God. God is not light in being gracious. There's no way that he can do that in his character and so he was gracious by dwelling amongst people and his will is perfect so we can't question God but in the middle of that they start getting restless they start doubting what God has already given them so they become restless they become doubtful even in the middle of their blessing and their presence of being God's people with God they start getting Restless, and they start questioning the very authority that God has appointed before them. Now, I'm not trying to use this sermon as one like, "You got to listen to me," because I'm just like Moses. But God has appointed people in our lives, and God has made it clear throughout His Word that sometimes the people that He's appointed as authority, they're they're meatheads. So, it's not a matter of whether or not they are. Meatheads or not, it's a matter of whether or not God has appointed them to lead. In this situation, it is clear. And so far, Moses has shown nothing but salvation and presence of God. He has been a representative of that leadership through grace and mercy to these people. And they got restless with it. They got restless with what God was providing them in the grace. They came up with their own ways. They questioned their authority And they started intermingling their own imaginations. They started intermingling pagan rituals, the things that come from the world. And they started intermingling it with the worship of Yahweh. It's not like they started doing a different religion. They didn't go and become Buddhist or Muslim. They were still saying that this is the God who took us out of Egypt, so much that commentators are confused with the use of the word Elohim here, whether they were talking about multi-deities of one God, because how they intermixed the, the worldly paganism into their worship, they're not really sure if it was singular or plural. So it's kind of confusing here, because you actually have it written here in the ESV that it was, these are the gods that saved you from Egypt. Because their worship was so messed up from their imaginations and their impatience and their obstinance and their stiff-neckedness that you couldn't distinguish between what was the world and what was of God. Is this what a sermon that the church needs to hear today? Is it a sermon that we need to hear as we come here each day? What draws us to worship? Are we drawn here because of obedience? Because he is mighty and great? Or are we here to get that boost? We want to be lifted up. We want to be affirmed in our own walks. Look at the music. I know I say this a lot, but look at the music that's out there. I was <laughs> trying to sing along with a song the other day, and it was 95% I, my, and me, and a little bit of Jesus. Like, who are we singing about? And people raising their hands, getting emotional. What we'll we see here in this particular story, just because they were getting loud doesn't mean that they had anything good to be singing about. So the Lord said, this is verse seven. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way in which I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone. That, I'm, that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. He's ready to wipe them all out. Moses is going to be the only one left. He says, these stick peak, people, I'm coming down and just... You know, get out of my way. Here I come. But look what Moses does. He says, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord... Why does your wrath burn against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses, this is where we want to take a moment. We want to hear what Moses says, but maybe take a moment and we get to be Moses, just for a moment. Look at what's going on here. And I say this because he's talking about offspring. I think this is one reason why it was easy for me to think about this, because I started thinking about children. And I think about parenting. <laughs> and then which sometimes turns into thinking about pastoring. And just start thinking about family and start thinking about difficulty and all kinds of mess that we run into. Look what Moses is doing here in this particular appointed role that he has. Does, does, does Israel deserve God's wrath? Yes. They do. They do deserve God's wrath. But Moses remembers God's promises. Moses is thinking about the things that God said. He's not going to react just totally off of his irritation. Now, you can see Moses acting irritation. This is an issue that, that Moses has. I mean, remember he killed some people. <laughs> he's, he's, not, he's not totally able to, to, to hold back from getting... You'll see him here in a minute when he throws the stones the tablets down. But immediately Moses goes to God's word. So whereas the people of God, they took a moment from their doubting and their frustration, they decided to go away from God's word and start relying on their imaginations and their own desires and their own frustrations and their own delight and appetite for the world. Moses goes back to the promises of God. Now, brothers and sisters, some of you are parents, some of you are spouses, but all of you all who are part of this church that I know of and those of you who have committed yourself to the Lord in baptism and are part of the church, you have committed covenantally to one another. This is a lesson for us to be like Moses in being an intercessor, that in the moments that we see one another sinning, that the right place to fall is to go back to God's word and to plead out to God to remember his promises. This is a, a, a good example of how God's people should be in a moment when it could be very frustrating and when there's a moment that wrath is truly deserved. Moses is shadowing Jesus by being an intercessor To God, to remember his promises of mercy, to remember his promises of what he's going to do. And if we look at each other's baptisms, we see that inside of that baptism, the baptism doesn't mean that we have come to a place of perfection. It means that we have come to a place of recognizing the mercy of God. And for all of you who are baptized, we should be praying for one another. It should be the first place we go to when we are offended by one another because they are not living covenantally and according to God's word. Our first place to go to should be to the Lord in intercession for each other and pointing back to the word of God. It says, God, in Acts 2, it says that you have made your people, that you've poured out your spirit upon them. And that you want them to further your kingdom by the proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. To further it through their covenantal relationships in their home and in their work and in the church. Father, you're going to keep your word to your people. You're going to do this because you said you were going to do this. Lord, have mercy on them. Have mercy on them in their moment of sin or rebellion. To be able to do that, you're going to have to first come through repentance yourself. And it says in verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing these people. And fast forward through, He comes down and you go a little bit further, and they hear the sound of singing. It says that it's not a noise of war; it's not a war of a sound of defeat. It's a sound of singing. They're they're having a party down there, and he starts getting riled up. You know, he's like, it's a good thing he prayed first. You know, it's a good thing he interceded for them first. And who knows where he may have gone with this? Because he throws down the tablets of stone that have a law on them. And he's already asked the Lord's mercy, but he appoints people. As he comes down and sees this synchronized idolatry amongst God's people, There's discipline that has to be had. There's some church discipline that's going to have to take place. And 3,000 people are killed. And a plague has been placed upon God's people. God is going to preserve his promises through his people, but there's discipline that has to be had. And they they end the service by coming to the table, (laughs) like we will in a moment, hopefully not quite like that. He takes that calf and he grinds it up and he makes them drink. He says, you've intermixed the worship of pagans into your worship. Well, you're going to drink damnation to yourself. It was a discipline, but it was a grace. It was a grace because even though in the midst of this discipline, which was what discipline is, they were preserved. And even in verse 1 and 2, of Exodus 33, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to a land which I have sworn to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. He's coming right back to the same thing that Moses was reminding him of. He says, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Pezrites, and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and up to a land flowing with milk and honey. And I will go up among you, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff, stiff, <laughs> stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and not one of them put on their ornaments. For, God, for the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I shall go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of the ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And then fast forwarding to verse 10, it says, And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, and all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks his friend. They were still going to be limited from that intimate connection, but they were going to still be able to be preserved because God still had more promises to do. He didn't fulfill every promise in the people of Israel. He restrained them from being able to have the full joy of that so much that he says, you don't want to be with me right now. Other things need to happen. If I'm with you right now, you're so stiff-necked, my righteousness would consume you. But he's still keeping them and furthering them along so much that he's still going to have Moses as being their intercessor. And that when Moses is with the Lord in the tent of meeting, there is friendship. And they get to stand at their door and they get to gaze on it, looking forward to a future promise to come. And looking at the mercy of God, God is still friends with his people. He's still friends with us. It's a good thing that we're not fully there yet. We don't have enough blood covering us to keep us to be annihilated by the Lord. They're looking for something that even Moses didn't have inside of them. They were looking at grace as God was saying, you're a thick, stiff neck. He was still bringing them along. See, when, when that name was there, they were, they were having that name as God was still showing mercy to them. When Stephen was telling those people that you're stiff-necked. He was reminding them, God is still with you. You just need to repent. He hasn't left you. He hasn't left his promises. Just repent, turn away from your sins. God has not abandoned you. Nehemiah does it best. And the story—I when I got into Nehemiah, I wanted to stop and preach a whole sermon on Nehemiah. It's so refreshing. If you get frustrated about the church, you get frustrated about our, our culture today, just go to Nehemiah. It says in Nehemiah chapter nine, "As they are being restored to the Lord, from their rebellion, there are two things that were their activities in their restoration, the Reformation, the reformation of the church." They spent three hours listening to the law. And he spent three hours repenting and confessing. Gonna do a little side note real quick. Does anybody know when Reformation Day is? The thirty first. The thirty first of what? Uh, October. October. When was the original Reformation Day? What year? You sure? How do you know that? What happened in 1517? 95 theses on the door of in Wittenberg. What was the first thesis say? Hey? Anybody know it says when the the Lord and Master Jesus Christ I'm going to paraphrase a bit called us to repent he meant for The whole life of the believer to be a life of repentance. Was the Reformation Day, was that Reformation occurrence, that 95 Theses, was that a grace to the church? It was a tremendous grace to the church. What were the reformers trying to do? Get the church back to what? Back to the Word of God and back to faithful worship. From the very beginning, in this story where the stiff-necked name came from, they turned away from the command and the law of God and they worshipped according to the world and according to their own imaginations. But Mary, you're wrong. It wasn't 1517. This account in Nehemiah, they've actually determined this. I didn't come up with this myself. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, they give you a... A time when this date happened, when the people of God came back to the word and came to the Lord in repentance. And it was October 31st, 445 B.C. They have figured, by matching up their calendars, that's what they determined. That was, it's just a little side note. I didn't even really make a big deal about it. I was like, whoa! That was the original reformation of the church. That when God brought his people back to them, back to his word and back to faithful worship, back to repentance from their rebellion was October 31st, 445 BC, 1962 years before Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg. God keeps keeps being with his people. When I think about Reformation Day, it wasn't the first time that God has reformed his people. And when we look at the church today, it's not the last time that we need to be reformed and being brought back to his word. In verse 16 of Nehemiah, it says, they prayed this prayer. It says, they're recounting their forefathers. It says in verse 16, but they, they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. And did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they were stiffened, they, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But get this right in the middle of verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger. An abounding and abounding in steadfast love. And did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your, in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day. Nor did the pillar of fire by night to light for them a way which they should go. Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of hishbon and the land of og the king of bashan you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess stephen knows that these people know that passage We may forget the story of Nehemiah. I've never read it or ever ever heard of it. But Stephen knows that they know Nehemiah's passage or Ezra's passage of this account of Nehemiah, whoever wrote it. He knows that. And so when he says, you stick-necked people, he's wanting to bring back to their mind that particular prayer of repentance. That's what they were praying. They were going, we remember when we were stick-necked. And we turned away, but you are merciful. And we remember that you have kept your promises. You go to Acts 2. What is the case when Peter is preaching to them? They say, what are we going to do now? He says, repent and believe. And receive the Holy Spirit. Be baptized, for this promise is for you and your offspring. God continues his covenant promises. He's continuing his covenant promises to this day. We want God to break our neck. We want to be like what it says in Hosea chapter 10. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. If you read that word break down, it's the same exact word for breaking someone's neck. We want God to break our stiff neckness down In verse 4, it says they utter mere words. They're empty oaths. They make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in their furrows of the field. Are your membership vows just empty oaths? Mere words of covenant. Or are you going to say, yes, Lord, your word is true. We will obey it. We will do what you say. Will you make intercession for one another? Will you do what they did in Acts 2? By coming to the table together and sharing their goods with one another and praying together and worshiping the Lord as he has called them to worship. Because in Hosea chapter 11, right after saying that, this is what God says. This is is the posture of God when we are breaking our covenants with one another, when we are intermixing the world into our worship, when our necks are stiff. This is the posture of God in Hosea chapter 11. Verse 8, it says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adama? How can I treat you like Zeboam? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and I am not a man the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. The true marks of the church are the proclamation of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and the discipline, discipleship of the people of God and church membership with one another, rebuking one another, calling each other nicknames that may have deep meanings of our rebellion, but also the endearing mercy of God's love for us. This table is a rebuke. The Lord's Son had to be sacrificed because we were stiff-necked people. Jesus had to go to the cross for our sins. But this table is also mercy. Yes, you are stiff-necked. But the Lord's mercy endures forever. His body was given to you, is given to you. This blood has been given to us. Let the Lord rebuke you. It was a grace to hear not just Luther's word calling the church to repent. It is a grace for us to remember that Jesus started his ministry with the word repent. Because he desires to dwell with us at this table forevermore. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for calling us stiff-necked. What a mercy, Father, that you don't just go, well, you know, they're using my name. It's okay. If they're using my name, then it's all good. Father, you don't want us to be in a place of receiving your wrath, your people that you've promised. Moses reminded you of that. You desire to preserve your people forevermore. We thank you, Father, that you have, through your son, that all these things have been accomplished in him. As we go from this word, rebuke our hearts, encourage our hearts, Remind us of your promises. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let us now stand and let us praise God for all the things that he has sustained us in.